Welcome to the Operatic Pastcast, a presentation and preservation of operatic memories and impressions, produced by Donald Cullop. Episode 113. As remembered by Alfred Hubey, there were many memorable moments of the 1958-1959 season of the Metropolitan Opera, including the Met's attempt to start a ballet company, Le Comte Hoffmann with Nikolai Guetta, Matuilda Dobbs, Lucina Mara, and George London, the debuts of Martina Arroyo and Cornell McNeil, a new production of Macbeth with Leonard Warren and Leonie Rizanek in her debut, and the Met premiere of Wozzeck with Hermann Uda, Eleanor Stieber, and Kurt Baum, conducted by Karl Böhm. Part two of three. They were still trying to cultivate a ballet, which I thought was a big waste of time. Instead of having a, an, another new production that season, they had what they call a ballet gala. They got people like Danilova, who was a wonderful dancer, who actually was hired to choreograph the Joconda Ballet that season, which made a lot of sense with two leading ballet stars that weren't in the company, Lupi Serrano. They were solo dancers with the, the, the ballet theater. So the trend was to bring in more professional ballet. But this ballet evening was new ballets by Tudor, Danilova, Henry Butler, Herbert Ross. And they brought in guest dancers for all the leading roles. But the quarter ballet was the Mets quarter ballet so it was basically the principles were wonderful but the core was terrible I don't know why they spent the money to tell the truth it was like people like Nora Kay was one of the people I born in dancing Lupi Serrano the big names of those days well after Metropolis had the heart attack there was a big scramble for conductors Bing had all these assistant conductors in the wings there there was a period of time because Metropolis really had a good season planned in addition to the Macbeth, and he was going to do the Toscas. There were other operas. Kurt Adler was originally the chorus master at the Met, and he became an assistant conductor. And there was a period of time there, near the end of the season, where he practically conducted every night. And, you know, that is not first rate. But then, of course, what also happened that season, Onegin came back, but the big difference was Lenski was Gedda. Oh, 
Unbelievable. The first performance, the chemistry, uh, it all started to make sense. It was still a horror, but the frustrating part was Geta also did Tamino that year, too. But he really jumped from repertoire to repertoire. But although the landscape was superb, what really cemented me and the audience, too, was when they revived Tales of Hoffman. It was Geta who was absolutely sensational. Uh, I mean, Joban back in the 40s was also a French-Canadian tenor. Geta, although Swedish, there was something about the way he sang French and the style, plus there was the endless top notes. It really showed him off. <laughs> Geta as Hoffman, George London doing all four roles, absolutely superb.
Amarillo Dobbs, somebody that no one remembers. Right after Anderson sang that season, one of the first people that Bing hired was Matawilla Dobbs to do Oscar, make her debut. She had gone to, having no luck in this country, she was the daughter of a mailman in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and she went to Sweden and was singing major roles, coloratura roles, like Lucia, Oscar, at the Royal Opera House in, in Stockholm. And Bing hired her. She was not the first after Anderson, but close, to, very close. And she was the uh, Olympia. Rosalies, who was graduated gradually after the Vanessa getting bigger roles, was the uh, Julieta. And Lucina Amara, for me, that was her absolute best role uh, of her whole career in a way. She was a wonderful Antonia. I think that role, the year she sang it, unstintingly, well, my favorite, of course, we will go back years, would be Novotna, who was incredible, in her, especially in her acting. But Amara... Because that role, if you sing it well, you actually, you're dying of singing, so there's not much, you don't have to be the greatest actress in the world. You just have to sing it well. 
and she did a great justice to it. And the conductor was Jean Morel, who was a very, very good conductor who had lots of personal problems, who was of the Piemonteur school, and he actually started City Opera. I heard him do a Peleos there. Wonderful conductor who had lots of demons, who actually, the career was cut very short. When he left the City Opera to go to the Met, and for a short time there, uh, he was the, the, the best French conductor they had. interesting debut that actually she became a major singer and she's a good friend of mine is uh, Martina Royo made her debut in Don Carlo She always told me the story. I knew her mother very well, but she got her mother a ticket for the opening. Of course, she didn't tell her mother anything about uh, the story. I think. And in those days, if you went out to the, the ladies' room, you could come back again. And she decided in the beginning of that act, she had to go to the ladies' room, and so she came back. So she never even heard her daughter, so she never saw her for the whole evening. And she finally went backstage, and, and, and uh, Martina said, I sing, but I'm not seen. And of course, she was out in the ladies' room at that time. Martina was there before Leontine, and she was there, I mean, talking about big stars that Leontine made a big splash. It's funny, Martina Geda and George London had the same teacher, Gorevich, all had the same teacher in New York. But Martina was very young, and she actually did, like, the Forest Bird and Siegfried. She did one of the, one of the Rhine Maidens. She did those small roles for a couple of years. Another debut that year was a major debut 
although Leonard Warren was still around, they brought in uh, Cornac McNeil, and his debut was Rigoletto, so he started off with a big debut. singing a lot in Italy. I remember that he told me that years ago, and uh, been singing, and I think even at that time, I'm not sure if the recording of Fanciulla was made or was after that, with Tobaldi and Delmonico, but he had a, a good success, not a fabulous success, but a good success. And of course, Leone Riesneck, that Macbeth, it was a terrible production. Macbeth is an opera that, although never been done at the Met, is still not a popular opera in America, but in Germany, during the 20s and 30s, Macbeth was performed a lot, so he brought over the team to do the directing and the decor. It was a copy of a production of the 30s from some opera house in Germany. What they were, people Bing knew, and Bing knew their work from Germany of the 30s. And it was a strange production. But Leinsdorf did his homework on that, and it was so successful, Victor wanted to record it right away. And right during the run, they signed the contract, and everybody went to the studio to record it. That recording in the studio is so flat, and I used to own that and say to myself, why was it so exciting that evening? It was exciting, until one day, just a few years ago, they played the broadcast, which is like the second performance on the radio, and it's the same principles, same conductor, unbelievably different. I mean, you wouldn't want to listen to a studio recording after you listen to this one. And Leonie Riesnick, with her strange quality and all, she had all the credentials, all the credentials related to Macbeth. The more I listen, I listen to it quite often, and she's very exciting. <laughs> Yeah. 
And Leonard Warren, it was a completely new role to him, of course, is new to the American public, uh, actually roasted the occasion uh, very well, very well. I mean, he had some imagination, and vocally, it was still a great, one of the great Verdi baritones of all time. And the rest of the cast, uh, Bill Olvis was in it. There are not that many important roles after that. But it became a big hit at the Met, uh, those performances. The opera that Bing adored and Carl Berm adored had never been done at the Met, Begs Vatsek. Berm got more rehearsals for that than any other conductor ever got for any other work. It still wasn't enough, but it was done in English, and I didn't realize it till I, I loved Herman Uda. I thought he was a very, very wonderful artist, and he'd done a few little things the year before in Wagner, and he, he looked exactly as Wozzeck should look. And it was a Kaspar Neha production, who was a, basically a, a European designer-director, and it was meant for a smaller theater. Production itself was a, a little throwback to the 30s. It was not the greatest production, and it looked small on the stage, but the cast was stupendous, especially singing English. Ellen Stieber didn't have to act the role. She was the blousiest Marie, 
and sang it, and with the English especially, sang it up a storm. Visualize a better Wozzeck. And his English was amazing. Forever I will 
I found out he was a product of a German father and an American mother. He died very suddenly a few years later, quite young. And uh, as a little boy, his mother took him back to visit her family to uh, New York. And by a little boy, he was about 12 or 13. And she took him to the opera house in New York. So he not only spoke English fluently, I was wondering because his English had just a tinge of a German accent. And it was Kurt Baum was perfectly cast as the drum major. on listening to some of the rehearsals and I had heard it with Metropolis on Good Friday in 1950 and I had the recording made from that performance on LP with Mac Harrell, superb underrated artists, and Eileen Farrell. It was also in English but it was not staged of course, it was a concert performance. So I was really anxious to see what the Met audience would make of this piece. And the first performance was uh, a Guild Benefit, Slightly Elevated Prices, and uh, they had to paper the house a lot. But it was such a success. That was done with two intermissions. Nobody knew that Wozzeck was so short you could do it with no intermissions. And for years we did it with two intermissions. Got this big mention in Time magazine, and the remaining performances completely sold out. And... Now, you can't really judge that performance by the broadcast. For some reason, you have to be in the theater. I, I listened to the broadcast years ago. I used to have a tape of it. And for some reason, the impact doesn't come through like it did in the theater, watching the actions of the principals and listening to the orchestra. Maybe the sound on the radio in those days. The orchestra was tremendous. I mean, enormous orchestra. And Byrne was the right conductor for it. Everything was fine. And the next season, they didn't repeat it, which is, a, I always think, a mistake if you've got a big success like that. It was amazing that the article in the New York Times, or it was even maybe on the cover or something, was so stupendous that it sold out the other performances. I remember inviting people to it the next time it came back and, and just saying, you've got to stay. I always felt that if you left before the last act, you, you didn't hear Wozzeck. No matter what you think, you've got to stay through the last act. And the strange part of it, years later, general manager was Anthony Bliss. I remember he called me one day and he said that Anya Celia came to his office and said, why do you do it with two intermissions? 
it's done now in Europe for, for years. It's been done with no intermission. It's only two hours long. It's, it's just about as long as Rheingold. And so he called me because I was head of, by that time head of the box office and all. He said to me, what do you think the chances are if Rusek was done without intermission? I said, that would be the best thing in the world because people don't stay for the last act. And I said, if that can be done. It's not that long an opera. He said, what do you think about the, the box office? I said, I think the box office would do better uh, with, with no intermission than, than w- with two intermissions. And from that season on, Wozzeck has never been done with any intermissions, and it works like magic. Whether Berg wrote it with no intermissions, I don't know. It could have been thought like the Dutchman, same as Dutchman. I think Wagner wrote it both ways. I think you could do it with uh, two intermissions or do it with no intermission. And when Bing first bought The Dutchman with Hans Harder and Astrid Varnay, that production was so designed. You have to design a production a little differently. Uh, it was designed for two intermissions and the conductor's choice. Years later, when they cut the intermissions out and had a production that worked with no intermissions, it worked much better for me. I think when you time it, it's, it's still a little, just a little longer than Rheingold. And if you could sit through two hours and 15 minutes of Rheingold with no intermission, there's no reason why you can't sit through Dutchman. But anyhow, the Wozzeck production now is basically designed for no intermissions. Uh, Nehaus production, I'm not sure if Nehaus production still existed when Anya Celia did it, because it would have been hard. I don't know. That was many years later. But that season, it was done without an intermission, and actually the box office was a little bit than I expected, and from there on in, it's an opera with no intermissions. But it was a revelation for people like myself who never heard, well, I heard it the one time in, in concert. There's a big difference between a concert version of Wozzeck and Wozzeck on the stage, a big difference, because the emotionalism of the characters doesn't come through as much, especially Marie. Arlene Farrell had a marvelous voice, and she sang beautifully. But here with the chorus behind her, with all the principal on the stage, it didn't have the effect that it has in the theater. But it was a big plus for Bing, because by that time he was being accused by a lot of the critics of catering to the public with his repertoire and everything else. And his defense was that he always had an eye to the box office. And he was absolutely right. And Wozzeck was an example of doing something that really didn't have box office appeal. Something happens in the last act when it's done separately, the way it's done in three acts, the end of the first and second acts are kind of anticlimactic, you know, in the text of the opera. And then you leave. The last act, when it's all put together, is shattering when it's done without an intermission. There's something about uh, Marie and the whole story comes to life there. Well, you said a 20-minute intermission, and then you go into, first of all, the acts are very short. You have a, like a 28-minute first act, and then you have a 15, 20-minute intermission. It's ridiculous. Then you have a short second act, another 15, 20-minute intermission. And by that time, I used to see go into the theater and see half the theater empty. They would leave.
Thank you for listening to the Operatic Pastcast. Visit the website at operaticpastcast.com. This is your producer, Donald Cullop. Thank you.